listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. This is Ron Michael, president of the NLJSP, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first. Enjoy this podcast. At the time, conservative reaction became manifest. Pro-war unionists had their say in May 1967 at a Support the Boys Labor March in New York City led by members of the International Longshoremen's Association. The dock workers, joined by rank-and-file from Teamsters and the Maritime Union, as well as members of the John Birch Society and the American Legion, streamed down New York's Fifth Avenue, shoving and arguing with young anti-war protesters. By now, the young people had ran out of patience. Robert Kennedy concluded before a dinner hosted by the Americans for Democratic Action That year, labor has been in the forefront of many a great battle, but youth looks with other eyes and their view is very different. They think of labor as grown, sleek, and bureaucratic with power, sometimes frankly discriminatory, occasionally even corrupt and exploitive, a force not for change but for the status quo. By 1967, the civil rights movement had attained many of its initial objectives, at least formally equal treatment in public accommodations, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and voting rights, the Voting Act of 1965. The young black activists, tired of the lack of real movement in the civil rights area, Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964, a movement of 1,000 white college students from the North to teach in rural schools and serve in voter registration drives, but news of the investigation into the June 21, 1964 Ku Klux Klan Slash police murders of an integrated team of civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, MFDP, wanted to have the all-white delegates replaced by them. The leaders directed by President Johnson shut the attempt down. Martin Luther King Jr. perceived, as did the younger activists, that America's racial problems were linked to intractable challenges that no federal legislation could necessarily touch, and he shared their frustration. His Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Operation Breakfast, began in Atlanta and Chicago, thought to address the core economic tensions that created the race riots by using consumer boycotts to demand equal hiring and investment in black neighborhoods by businesses that profited there. On April 4, 1967, King spoke out against the war at New York's Riverside Church where he asserted that it lacked moral and strategic validity. Evaporating resources needed at home to rectify social and economic crisis and that it sent predominantly poor and minority young men to fight and die. King did not single-handedly move the moral indignation of the civil rights cause to the anti-war front. But his public pronouncement as coming out against the war could not help but skim 
a national turning point. And as he was at least two years ahead of the mainstream media and the general public in souring on Vietnam, he paid a considerable price for his courage. Even fellow civil rights leaders were refusing to comment upon his words. Baseball legend Jackie Robinson stated that he respectfully disagreed with Dr. King. The Jewish war veterans of the United States of America took him to task for comparing the U.S. military to the Nazis. Carl Rowan, a black columnist who assailed King in the pages of Reader's Digest, accusing him of having developed an inflated idea of his own influence. The writer scolded King for having abandoned the humble methods and philosophy of social change that had characterized his Montgomery bus boycott and other civil rights victories. King replied by reminding Rowan that in America, speaking out, even in unpopular terms, did not signify disloyalty, and he branded the allegations about communism as tired red baiting. King was right on these points. Of course, no matter what, one thought of his views on Vietnam, but Rowan's harshly worded chastisement had struck a nerve. King became involved in a labor dispute in Memphis with civil rights overtones on February 12th, sanitation workers of local 1733 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME, staged a wildcat strike as a result of increasing grievances, including a recent accident in which two workers had been crushed to death by defective machinery. The local had 1,300 members, all but five were black, and had long endured pay and promotion disparities and other slights. Even as the city for five years had staved off the union's demand for recognition, the mayor of the city, Henry Loeb, was arguing that it should take a worker five years to get the going rate of $1.80 an hour because, he said, it takes five years to learn the skills to empty a garbage can. The men were so poorly compensated, received no overtime or vacation pay, many were forced to rely on welfare and food stamps. The city agreed to some of the demands, a more just promotion system, improved health and retirement benefits, and a streamlined grievance procedure, but refused to negotiate further until the workers returned to work, refused recognition of the union, threatened to fire any workers who did not return to work. When Loeb authorized the hiring of scabs to man the garbage trucks with police riding shotgun, tensions rose, the union defying a new court injunction against picketing and demonstrating, marching down Main Street carrying signs saying, I'm a man, showing it was a strike about dignity. The community launched a boycott of downtown white businesses. On March 14th, 9,000 people filled a church to hear civil rights leaders Bayard Rustin and Roy Wilkins voiced their support for the strike. This sparked the idea of a nonviolent march led by King and was scheduled for Thursday, March 28th. Unfortunately, King and his staff did not have the chance to fully understand the specifics. This lack of intelligence on what was going on in Memphis was compounded on the day of the march when his plane was delayed and he arrived at the Clayton Temple AME Church where 6,000 marchers awaited him two hours late. Neither he nor his aides were told that earlier that morning black high school students trying to leave school to join the march had clashed with police, hurling rocks and empty soda bottles. Finally underway 
along Beale Street with King in the lead, having gone just three blocks when young marchers at the rear began taunting cops and smashing shop windows. Police, edgy from the earlier battle at the high school, surged into the crowd, flailing with riot sticks and eventually using both mace and tear gas. The march stopped, then split with the older marchers retreated to their homes or the Claiborne Temple. King was taken in a car and driven away. Street fighting started by the time order was restored. Fifty people required medical attention. Over 100 people had been arrested. Mayor Loeb called out 4,000 National Guard. To King, the plight of the black sanitation workers in Memphis illustrated precisely how the issues of economics and race intertwined, and he announced another march would be held in Memphis, this time organized by his own staff. King recognized that it was important to take the young men seriously. Instead of scolding them, he listened to their complaints and seemed to succeed at convincing them to mend their ways for the rescheduled march, which was to take place on Friday, April 5th. The city had obtained a federal court injunction against the event despite the pleading of the U.S. attorney and city officials. King insisted he would defy the order. However, he agreed to postpone the protest until Monday, April 8th, in order to allow national labor delegations time to make it to town to participate. The night of Wednesday, April 3rd, Memphis was deluged by heavy rains, and King, assuming the weather would diminish attendance at a scheduled church rally for the striking sanitation workers, sent his chief lieutenant, Raymond Ralph Abernathy, to speak in his speed. Soon, Abernathy was on the phone to King's room at the Lorraine Motel to report that the turnout at the church was both sizable and spirited, despite the bad weather and that his presence was earnestly desired. Abernathy no doubt thought it would be beneficial for King, who was still upset by recent events to bask in the adulation of a sympathetic audience in the familiar settings of a black church. When King arrived at the gathering, he went to the pulpit and seemingly wanting to clear his troubled mind, launched into prophetic ruminations, well, I don't know what will happen now, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Thursday, April 4th, even the skies above Memphis had cleared. In a few minutes before six, from a perch across the street, assassin James Earl Ray looked up from his rifle to see a man wearing a crisp black suit, white shirt, and tie emerge from the second floor room and come to stand alone by the railing of the motel balcony. The Vietnam War was bound to split labor. The most fragile relationship was the Meany Ruther partnership of the AFL-CIO. Never a solid relationship, Ruther's mid-1950s denouncement of the love, Stonian, Cold War meddling that Meany fathered, and while relationships improved when the two leaders joined to respond to the McClellan Committee's indictment of labor, the thaw ended in 1963 when Meany refused AFL-CIO 
endorsement of the March on Washington, which Ruther and the UAW supported. Most recently, Ruther had donated $50,000 from the UAW to the Memphis sanitation strike, only then to be informed that Southern UAW members had refused to lower flags to half-mast after King's murder on April 4th. Ruther sought to reestablish the movement's tie to liberals and intellectuals. He called for more direct aid to farm workers and intensified efforts to organize the nation's public service employees and spoke of finding ways for the UAW to play a large role in combating racism. He pointed out the need to develop common bargaining goals for auto workers in all auto-producing nations as a means of counteracting global wage competition. Henrik recommended the country turn its attention to repairing bridges, roads, and other infrastructure. Ruther remarked in December 1967, as the parent body of the American labor movement suffers from a sense of complacency and adherence to the status quo and is not fulfilling the basic aims and purposes which prompted the merger of the AFL-CIO in the first place. Meany brushed off Ruther's criticism, saying, we, we resent being called tottering old men who do not know what we are doing. But he consented to a special meeting Ruther requested to describe the UAW's plans and air the automaker's frustration with the Federation. However, when Meany insisted the meeting be held with the understanding that the UAW would accept its conclusions no matter what, Ruther replied that his organization was not about to give anybody a loyalty oath, and the gathering was canceled. In early 1968, the UAW began withholding its dues of $90,000 a month, and in May of that year, following an exchange of threats and warnings, between the two leaders, UAW was dropped from the FLCIO for non-payment of dues. On July 1st, 1968, it announced its formal separation. Once in office, President Nixon appeared to have no immediate solution for the war, and domestic impatience deepened over the summer of 1969. Fed in part by news of a shocking war crime perpetrated by U.S. soldiers, it was revealed that in March 1968, an American infantry brigade had entered the Vietnamese village of Song Mai and its six hamlets named Mailai and killed more than 500 Vietnamese civilians. The atrocity helped usher in a new phase of anti-war concerns. After Mailai observed Tony Mizuchi, a veteran labor organizer with the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers, OCAW, it was a broad spectrum of society that turned out on October 15, 1969, when a national one-day moratorium against the war left no doubt that anti-war sentiment had crossed over fully into the mainstream. Mizuchi, a New York native who was a combat veteran of the Second World War, organized anti-war speeches and labor's most prominent anti-war efforts. Full page ad that ran in the Washington Post on February 25, 1970, signed by 110 individuals from the American Federation of Teachers, the UAW, the Teamsters, and the AFL-CIO, headlined, Rich Man's War and Poor Man's Fight. The ad listed the war's cost to life and limb by May 1970, Washington Labor for Peace. The ad hawk group 
founded to place the post ad, joined business executives, moved for Vietnam peace to hold a 400-person public fast in Lafayette Square across from the White House. Additional outrage came on May 4th when Ohio National Guard fired on a group of student protesters at Kent State University, killing four and wounding 11. More shootings of young people and student protesters occurred in August. Augusta, Georgia, and Jackson State in Mississippi triggering massive protests as numerous colleges across the country closed by student strikes. Several unions from the left-leaning local 1199 to the conservative teamster sent telegrams to the White House demanding the president reverse course. Walter Ruther, who demanded the country's immediate withdrawal of its forces, on May 6, he issued a statement saying, It is your responsibility to lead us out of the Southeast Asian War, to peace at home and abroad. Tragically, it would be his last public statement. On the night of May 9th, he and his wife, May, along with four others, rode in a private jet to Pelston, Michigan, to inspect a UAW Family Education Center. While attempting to land in fog and rain, the pilot crashed a mile and a half short of the airport. No one survived. Then one of the most shameful incidents in labor movement history occurred. The assault on May 8th by hundreds of New York building trades workers on a lunchtime student anti-war protest in Lower Manhattan. The students from New York University, Hunter College, and area high schools had rallied peacefully all morning at the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street. The construction workers had wandered over from their jobs on the World Trade Center site. The construction workers forced their way to the front of the assembly and began using their yellow hard hats as bludgeons to attack the young people as well as adult passers-by who attempted to intervene. They pursued their victims through the city's financial district, knocking them down, kicking and stomping them before heading to nearby City Hall, where liberal Republican Mayor John Lindsay had ordered the American flag flown at half-staff to honor the students killed at Kent State. The hard hats demanded the flags be put at full mass. The police arranged for this, but the mayor's aide had them lowered. They rushed the building, and the flags were again raised. Some then proceeded to cross the street to the campus of Pace University and smashed the first-floor windows. That night, the news was filled with video unhampered by police, showing the students being mobbed and beat, young men and women covering defensively on the ground. Peter Brannan of the Building and Construction Trade Council of Greater New York explained that the incident had not been orchestrated by the union higher-ups, a claim proven false by subsequent press investigations. All of this brought about, for some, a desire for normalcy and restoration of authority. The Republicans would cleverly exploit this yearning convincing some blue-collar workers to leave their traditional Democratic support. Nixon watched the 1970 midterm elections closely, determined to similarly gain blue-collar support in December 1971. He commuted the sentence of Jimmy Hoffa, who had served four and a half years of a 13-year term in federal prison, helping to secure the endorsement of the Teamsters. The AFL-CIO refused to endorse the Democratic candidate, George McGovern, because of his dovish views on the war. McGovern was a decorated combat veteran 
of the Second World War and a man attuned to the historic difficulties of organized labor. He had recently co-authored a well-regarded book about the Ludlow Massacre of 1914. On election day, America rejected him overwhelmingly. This brought about one good thing, the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, also known as OSHA, which for the first time established a federal apparatus for the creation of health and safety standards for the workplace and the monitoring of related illnesses and injuries. The publication in 1962 of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, an account of the dangers of the commonly used pesticide, DDT, served as a template for inquiry into other industrial products like leaded gasoline and food additives. Three years later, another landmark book by Ralph Nader, Unsafe at Any Speed, exposed the inherent risks built into automobiles, eventually influencing laws and attitudes as had no other work since Upton Sinclair's The Jungle a half-century before. It required an especially horrific industrial health scandal for from West Virginia to grab the attention of Congress and the nation in 1936. Near the village of Goulet Bridge, several thousands, thousand black and white laborers worked for as little as 30 cents an hour on the Hawks Nest Tunnel, a union carbide project to divert water from the New River to create a hydroelectric power. The workers called Hawks Nest the Tunnel of Death due to the prevalence of silicosis, a lethal respiratory disease. They contracted because the three-mile-long excavation was being bored through rock, the drilling turning up fine silica dust against which the workers had inadequate protection. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes. Good evening. This is James Napolitano, the International Vice President of the National League of Justice Security Professionals, where members come first. (music) 